Welcome to Zen Bones, ancient wisdom for modern times. This is Mark Lesser. Why Zen Bones? Our world is in crisis and ever-shifting, and now, more than ever, more wisdom, clarity, and courage are essential, especially in the world of work, business, and leadership. In this episode with actor and activist Peter Coyote, we dive into Peter's story and how he came to Zen practice and also his acting path. We talk about meditation, Zen practice, the power of ritual, and the liberating effect of mask work, and as well as bringing Zen practice into everyday life. Lots of great material, so let's dive in. Welcome to Zen Bones, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Times. Uh, this is Mark Lesser, and I am so um, just thrilled and happy to be here today with my uh, friend and colleague, Peter Coyote. Probably doesn't need any introduction, but just, you know, Peter Peter has done amazing things in his life as, a, uh, as an actor, as a writer. Many people will be familiar with Peter's voice for the many, many phenomenal uh, voiceovers that Peter has done. And Peter's also a, these days, uh, inhabiting the body of a Zen teacher, uh, as well as all, all these other things. So welcome, Peter. It's great to see you. Thank you, Mark. It's, I'm really privileged to be here. Maybe you start even by saying a little bit about what you're, um, what's really calling to you these days. I know that you're, I know that you're involved in, um, as I said, in Zen, in Zen teaching, but really, I think your I think of your core work as uh, working for change, working for change in the political world, in the world of capitalism. Uh, but it's interesting, interesting to uh, be all of the things that you've done in the world, and. Uh, as an artist, as an artist, and and in a way, uh, being a Zen teacher is a bit like being an artist in a in a kind of a different way. But holding it all together, I think, is I, I often think that we all have some deep conscious or unconscious theory of change. How does how does what we do help help to uh, change ourselves, grow ourselves, allow allow us to be, uh, you know, yeah. You just mentioned that uh, the, the title of your next book makes me think of the Suzuki Roshi and things as it is, things as it is. This expression about uh, uh, re reality, living in the, you know, and I often think that 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 what he meant by that was. The absolute world, the world outside of our, of our thinking, of our experience, even, and yet, we we have to live. This question for me often is: How do we live? How do we live effectively in both worlds? This things as it is, 
in the world of the day-to-day world, but integrated with the world that I think Suzuki Roshi meant when he talked about things as it is. When I first heard that expression, things as it is, I thought it was a charming mistake by a Japanese speaker struggling with English. You know, things is plural and it is singular. And I don't know how many years on my pillow it was before I sat up and said, holy shit. No, it's it's the whole ball of wax. There's only one big thing, and it appears as multiple things, and he got it encapsulated in a sentence. Uh, I was flabbergasted by that. And it actually gave me confidence in the applicability of Zen practice to my political uh, aspirations. The I became an actor because um, when I came out of the counterculture, I had played every card in my deck and lost. Uh, I, I was a heroin addict. I was a single father. The mother had run away. Uh, we hadn't overthrown capitalism. We hadn't ended racism. We hadn't stopped war. We hadn't transformed the United States to the degree that I'd hoped. But when I thought about it culturally, I thought, well, wait, we did make some dents here. Uh, The women's movement, the environmental movement, the organic food movement, alternative medical practices, alternative spiritual practices. We did have an effect, and people are, are living that way. So, but I was broke. My dad had lost all his money. And um, so I had this skill as an actor, and I was working for Jerry Brown on some poverty government program and then running a state agency for him, but there was no salary attached. And I had to make a living. I had uh, one child, and I was married, had a wife. And I gave myself five years to try the movies. I used to be an actor, and I'd given it up to overthrow the United States culture. And I got lucky. So I became an actor because I didn't want to write for money, because writing was actually sacred to me, or communication was sacred. But I, I, it created a kind of conundrum. I had already been at Zen Center. I came to Zen Center in 74. And so by the time I started thinking about an, being an actor, it was 76. And by the time I got my Screen Actors Guild union card, it was 79. So I'd had a few years on the pillow. And I had this challenge to face, which is that I was moving to Babylon I was moving into a world that was based on ego and the personality and ambition and greed and all of these things. And I thought, how am I going to do this? And so I had to, uh, I had to analyze what are my options? Well, the first option was I, I was going to have very little affect over what film got made. I was basically a campesino. I was basically up for hire. And so I thought, well, all I can do is say yes or no. If a film is too odious, I don't have to do it. But what I could affect was the way I make the movie. That's within my control. And that's where Zen practice really came to help me. I thought, well, I can show up on time. I can be prepared. I can be non-competitive. I can treat everyone equally, the star, the director, the PAs, the cook, whatever it is. Um, I can just do my best moment after moment after moment. 
And if I take the most enlightened possibility in any moment, I'm, I'm doing as well as I can. So I don't think of that as any grand strategy at world change. It literally was an economy. I did 160 films, most of which I remember as either being called uh, mortgage or tuition. But the political work and the Arts Council actually gave me a, a platform and a little bit of celebrity, which I was very uncomfortable with because celebrity itself violated my worldview, um, where one person was the center of everything. I just saw a movie where Tom Hanks is a naval commander, and he basically wins World War II by himself. There's not even a woman in the movie. It's just him running back and forth on a battleship, doing everything. And I thought, that's the worldview of a Hollywood star. But I lived on communes. My relatives were Jewish communists and socialists and labor organizers. That's not my worldview. I don't like it. And so I kept trying to subsume it and just meld. And Zen Center was a community where it was safe to do that. They didn't care if I was an actor or not or a celebrity. And I was really changed by Zen Center. And I was changed by a number of things that I grew to be a little critical of, but not judgmental. So for me, coming out of heroin, hair down to my ass, you know, feeling I had lived a life of freedom, I was already enlightened, I just needed a few polishing touches and I'd be fine, to be dropped into this community of like somber, disciplined people who might get up and leave the room while I was talking. It just, it made me psychotic. And I just kept saying, what is this place? Who are these people? But little by little, there was something about the schedule. There was something about so many people that were just really genuinely nice and trying to be the best expression of themselves that I settled into a rhythm. I, I began to understand the utility of the forms, how the forms give us kind of boundaries and give us a kind of, like you can trust your body. You can, because we have a form, a form of zazen, you can relax and let anything come through your mind. You don't have to be attached to it. So I did that for about eight years. And I was in a funny sort of privileged position. Uh, I was working for Governor Brown, and then I was a movie actor. Uh, my wife, Marilyn, was very well networked and connected at Zen Center. She ran Alaya. She ran the mailing list in the office. She knew everybody. But I was also a peer of Baker Roshi's and a, a peer of Governor Brown's, and I was in this invisible luncheon, uh, invisible university luncheon he ran every week. And so I had a kind of bifurcated view of Zen Center, and the bifurcation bothered me. It bothered me that um, I would eavesdrop on a conversation of a couple of women debating whether or not which $200 lampshade to buy for an infant's room. And my wife was working for $200 a month. And it bothered me that students were getting up at four in the morning to bake bread, but they didn't have time to sit zazen. And all of the surplus capital of their labor was going into a white BMW that the that the Abbott was driving. 
And, you know, it just rankled my kind of commie Jew sensibilities. But I had enough grounding in Zen to kind of sit with it. So, as, and I'll end this monologue, <laughs> let you in, but as time went on, I began writing this, these two books called Vernacular Zen, in which I wanted to loosen the gift wrapping of Japanese culture. Because in every culture, Buddhism wrapped itself in the gift wrapping of the culture. Buddha was born in Nepal. It was a Hindu culture. And all the stuff about reincarnation, that's all Hindu. Buddha didn't really teach reincarnation. You don't have to know anything about it to understand Buddha. Then they went to, to China, and uh, it merged with um, Taoism and Confucianism, it went to Japan, emerged with Shintoism, and in every place it changed. And then because we had the good fortune to have Suzuki Roshi and the chain of Japanese teachers, it got kind of crystallized into a kind of what I call is high Anglican Zen. Um, my friends and my teacher tells me that Suzuki Roshi had almost no ceremonies at all. Everything was very, very informal. And then little by little, teachers came from Japan and they, they brought, they taught what they knew. And at a certain point, I think Baker Roshi decided that it was probably easier to raise millions of dollars to build Tassajara and City Center and Green Gulch if it was this orderly, impressive, disciplined thing than a bunch of crazed hippies, like a lot of the older students were. So I thought about that a lot. And because I was so changed by Zen Center, I don't want to impugn the Japanese culture. I still do a lot of chants in Japanese. I still wear my robes to do ceremonies. I have a little zendo and zabutans and zafus and stuff. But I realized that as long as Zen appeared foreign to Americans, it would subtly exclude people who were never going to shave their head. They were never going to take ordination. And they were never going to hear these very human states translated into plain vernacular English. And so that's sort of what I've set out to do, to tightrope between my training for eight years in Japanese forms and then my life as an American with a, 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 an intention to make it widely available. That's great. I love, um, I love hearing your story. And, uh, you know, I also arrived at the San Francisco Zen Center the same year you did, 1974. And, um, and then um, a year later, I went down to Tassajara and, and got this kind of complete immersion. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. And I'm, I'm, um, I'm still, you know, I, I'm currently the co-chair of the San Francisco Zen Center Elders Council. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really getting to see up close, you know, the, there's enormous transition happening, I think, not only at the San Francisco Zen Center, but uh, Zen practice throughout the, uh, throughout the Western world. 
is grappling with in what way are all of those forms core to Zen practice? And in what way are they kind of a, as you, I think were kind of saying, they're, they're kind of a barrier. They're a barrier. They can be a barrier to entry. Um, I mean, I also teach uh, a little bit. I, I'm teaching a class right now uh, at Spirit Rock. And what's super interesting is that the, the world of, you know, Vipassana, uh, this other form, this has this whole other history, which is more, you know, um, not, not through Japan, but more through uh, Southeast Asia. But somehow a decision got made to let go of pretty much all of the forms and, and ceremonies. And, and uh, you know, one, one could be critical of, of all of that. Well, although, although it's interesting, I'll share with you, uh, I, I was co-teaching recently with a, uh, a Vipassana teacher, and I used the phrase that I'm sure you're familiar with, that Suzuki Roshi sometimes used, was, um, you know, f- pr- precise forms for a flexible mind. And this Vipassana teacher turned to me and said, you know, here we talk about flexible forms for a more precise mind. And and there's and I thought, wow, this is this is fa- this is fascinating. These are two different perspectives, two different theories of change, as it were. Because Vipassana actually, you know, in, in the Zen world, the theory of change basically is just sit down and face the wall and everything will be great. You'll that that's that's pretty much the you know, there's that's the primary teaching, the primary theory of change is is sit down, be quiet, and everything will reveal itself. I didn't discover until I started teaching meditation at Google that I didn't know how to teach meditation to Western people. Google Google engineers needed a lot more direction and precision than just sit down and face the wall. And I, I had to learn, and I feel like I'm still learning, how do you bring these practices into the Western world without, without all of the, as you say, the uh, Japanese gift, gift wrapping. And I love the forms too. And, uh, and, and in some way, uh, one could argue that they're, that they're important, that they're vital, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming less convinced of that myself. So I've done fundraisers for Spirit Rock. I think of them kind of as, as cousins. But I firmly disagree with the decision to get rid of ceremony because people need ceremonies. That's been my, my intention. Um, ceremonies, when they're orchestrated correctly, they actually change you by going through them. There's a difference between living with someone and being married and having expressed your vows in public to witnesses. Um, So I I feel that that was a little radical. And I also feel that that phrase, flexible practice for precise minds, you know, our mind is wild. 
the mind is wilderness. And the idea of rendering it precise is like turning it into bonsai instead of redwood trees. So I would argue that if everything is precise, where do we find the freedom? Where do we find the part of formlessness that is just the roiling energetics? And to me, I'm very much in the Gary Snyder school that the mind is wild. And so maybe that's my affinity for Zen is that I've learned from these forms. Well, you know this yourself, that when people come to you, they've said to you probably many times, you know, I've tried meditating, but I just can't stop my mind. You know, and you just want to shake them a little bit and say, no, 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 that's not the point. We're going to teach you how to detach from your mind. Let the mind be the mind. And you put your energy in the body in this form. And it will ground you and give you a safe place to let the wildness of your mind, the energy, energetics of your mind be what they are. So, you know, the, the universe is nothing if not diverse. And I certainly don't, don't argue with other people. But um, I find that I'd rather, I'd rather have strict form and a free mind than a mind that's like a bonsai tree. I, I think I think that uh, uh, you know it's interesting. I I I notice that in the work that I get to do with uh, executives in the business world, I, I think there's something, Peter, about what I think of as perspective taking as a practice. Perspective taking as a practice. So so for example, you know. Uh, I think one could easily argue, you know, precise forms, flexible mind, precise mind, flexible forms. I think actually they're kind of the same thing. That that if you if we get underneath it, I think what the Vipassana people would say, they'd completely agree with you. However, what they would say is we just need a little bit more form to understand our wild minds. That without a little bit more precision about how we pay attention to the breath and how, see, see so they bring, see, so that's that's where, um, whereas, uh, uh, you know, because core original. Buddhist teachings and you know Buddha's teaching was actually quite precise right the the four foundations of mindfulness for example um, now you know it's funny at, at, often at in, in Zen practice places you don't get to those until you've been around for years find out, oh yeah there's there is all of this precision there is all of this instruction so it's interesting that it's you know, to me, uh, things as it is, is almost always a both and, a both and. Yeah, no, it is. And, and I think you're right to, uh, to stop me. Um, you're right. It was a little one-sided. But let me loop back to the, the subject of art for a second. Because I'll tell you, uh, so first of all, Artists are people who see the world differently than the world is taught to them. 
And because of that, they're forced to create their own, own grammar and syntax in expressing it. And their art form is the grammar and syntax, whether it's dance, whether it's song, whether whatever it is, is the way they make their perceptions communicable. So one of the things I've been doing for about 40 years, and I've been doing it with a lot of businessmen, uh, people who are not actors, is I run these improv and mask classes. And if I work with you for about half a day, and I kind of stress your sense of self a little bit. I give you exercises that change your posture. I give you exercises that change your status. I give you exercises where you're in a circle uh, making up a song to a rhythm, and the rhythm is implacable, and as soon as the person next to you is done, you have to start and say your line, and you have to leap in without thinking. By the time you've done a whole host of things like that, I put a neutral mask on you and I hold a mirror up in front of you. And it's never failed in 45 years that the person's personality disappears and they somehow take in a holographic personality from the mask. And they get about 10 minutes of gravity-free freedom because with the absence of their self, went their self-consciousness, their self-criticism, their second-guessing. And I query them, I interview them, I introduce, I do three at a time. They start interacting with each other. And every student will do this three times, change masks three times and find three different characters. And I use this as a lost leader. I call it enlightenment light. And this is what sets people up to understand Buddha's idea of no fixed self. And one of the ways it applies to businessmen is it actually teaches people to get out of their own, their own way, to get out of their constructs of mind, to try to find actually their authentic voice that comes over the spinal telephone. And so it's kind of a weird amalgam of acting and improv and comedy and masks, but it has very practical applications. So... For instance, if somebody's describing a problem that they're having at work, I'll say, well, how would the, the guy you discovered in the mask today do it? And all of a sudden, they're in a different universe, and they get a completely different look at the problem. When I'm teaching voiceovers, and these guys are trying to be good and professional, and I say, do it like you did the, this masked crazy woman. They do that, and all of a sudden, everything comes to life. Now, the voice might not be appropriate, but they can then do it in their own voice, and all the surprises will be there. So I keep looking back to wild mind as kind of the closest image I can get to Buddha nature, to formless, roiling energy that's always generating forms. And the only way that I can see of approaching it is through things that kind of frustrate your inherent following everything, believing everything you think. So whether it's sitting zazen, whether it's doing exercises that make you uncomfortable, um, something has to impede habitual flow to put you in touch with authentic flow.
Uh, I love, I, I want to come do one of your, uh, your, your workshops. And, and actually, Peter, what, strikes, what really struck me is that in, in a slightly different form, it is so similar to the work that I do in the business world. I bet. That's what made me think of it. Yeah. And that, um, and that in some way, you, you know, one way that uh, when it's done well, meditation practice could be you know taking the masks off who are you who are you when you take the masks off in uh the, the work that i used to do uh i used to do a lot of work for google engineers and they would say what we like about these programs are we get to take our game faces off right there's a game face that you put on as in work and you take it off and then I've often thought that one of the most impactful exercises that we did was just get people into pairs and practice listening. And in order to listen, it means you have to take your own mask off and and be curious about who this other person is. And and I was surprised like that was like and still this I feel like, you know, my son my son makes fun of me. He says that what I do for a living is get people in pairs and listen to each other. And, 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 and yes, that is a lot what I do. Ouch, ouch, ouch. <laughs> but, but actually, it is, um, it's amazingly uh, impactful, this having, whether it's using an actual mask or sitting in front of another human being and re- and seeing that you have to remove your own your own mask to some degree in order to actually listen and it's like wow like 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 listening through what through what ears through what heart through what yeah so um yeah this thing about masks has fascinated me for years and uh it's because well, I'll send you this book, but I, I, when I was in the San Francisco Mime Troupe, I put on a mask, and all of a sudden, this nice Jewish boy from Englewood, New Jersey, disappeared, and there was this scabrous old curmudgeon with a Yiddish accent who was wildly inappropriate, and I loved this guy. I could say anything. I mean, my first line on stage was an ad lib where I introduced my daughter, this whiny daughter, and I introduced her and I said, the reason I love my daughter, (laughs) she killed my wife in childbirth. (laughs) And the audience fell out and I knew I could do it. It was like, and all the parts of myself that I had tried to polish and tame and make into a nice studious, you know, yeshiva nudnik, is like gone. And I got the first glimpse into Wild Mind. So I wrote this book this year where, where I've, I've just written about all these exercises and in, integrated them with Buddhist theory. And businessmen seem to like it. Beautiful. My, my similar experience was uh, many years ago taking a, an improv and writing class. And I loved, I loved the writing but I was the improv piece just frightened me, and and I I I remember the uh, 
the teacher, I was kind of hiding in back of the room and this teacher says, Mark, why don't you come up here? And, and she had me come up in front of the room and she says, what should, we, what should we do? What should we do for you? She said, let's try this. Why don't you say, I hate? And, and actually, she was, did it over and over and over and got me really worked up to where, and then kind of let me loose. And, and again, this whole, uh, I, I, I blurted out, I hated high school graduation where they lined us up by height and I was the smallest one. I hated that. And I just went, I just went on and on. And then I was, but I, I was surprised how without any thinking or trying, I transitioned little by little into love and into, into appreciation in, in one of the more deepest and profoundest ways of feeling it, but I need I needed to access the hate part of me that I generally you know tuck away into the corner. Yeah, because do you know? Did you ever read this book by David Brazier called "The Feeling Buddha"? I don't know it, no, but I will. I'll, I will get it. Well, let me re- let me recommend it because he has the most logical translation of the four noble truths much more logical than what we're what we're taught you know suffering exists there's a path of the he goes back to buddha's first speech when after his enlightenment and so it's dukkha samudaya niroda and marga so dukkha which was translated by a lot of christian translators as suffering tends to concentrate on the mental aspects But what Buddha actually defined dukkha as was birth, death, grieving, loss, illness, mourning, being stuck in situations that you don't like, and uh, being uh, held away from situations that you do like. And he points out that none of this is your fault. Buddha called it a noble truth. And if truth means anything, it means real. And noble means, if anything, worthy of respect and dignity. The second noble truth you can't do anything about either, which is samudaya. When, when, when you're afflicted by something, things arise. Somebody cuts you off in the car, you want to give them the finger. When you're too hot, you move away from the fire. And what he points out is that these two kind of global pressures are like the energy that move our life. They, they just keep the pot bubbling and boiling. The third one is the only one where we can begin to actually affect, which is called niroda. And the image is a clay wall that's built around the edge of a fire pit. And it stops the flames from leaping out of the fire pit and burning the village or the crops. And, you know, it's like gasoline. If you throw gasoline on the ground, it just creates havoc or it just burns off harmlessly. If you put it in the container of an engine, it does work. And so meditating is the containment. The people who run from affliction and run from what arises are filling the bars and the mental hospitals and they're shopping and they're seeking power and they're in the wrong beds. But once you learn from meditating that you can contain anything that arises, they're ephemeral then you can prepare to walk the Eightfold Path, which is the blueprint for modeling the life of a Buddha 
in your own. And, you know, it's so workable. It's so useful. It's just, it's so much less metaphysical. I forget why I explained that, but something you said put me... It, to me, this all, uh, in some way, uh, I'm thinking about where where we started with uh, at me asking you about theories of change. And in a way, the... Um, you know, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path are Buddha's theory of change or his experience of change. And you talking about the work that you do with executives around mask work. This is another another way of cultivating um, things things as how it's, you can say things as it is, but how do you live it? How do you live it? How do you embody it? How do you bring it in? How do you, as a as a person, how do you live it? As a teacher, how do you help open other people's bodies and minds to seeing it, living it, feeling it? So let me just challenge the word theory for a second, because when you first said that, I thought, well, I'm going to be a failure at this because I can't think that I've ever theorized a path for myself or had like a life plan or yes, if I sit, you know, I just stopped me cold. But what I love about my whole understanding of Buddhism is that we are modeling the life of a Buddha who demonstrates to us how we can live a noble and dignified and helpful life in the midst of we're all living in a peppered wind. We're all afflicted all the time. And so to me, it's less a theory than it is an actual pedagogy of how to do it. And so at least I'm more comfortable with that because I'm not very good at theory. I'll go, I'll go with that. Maybe it's, you know, uh, pra you know, practices to cultivate change, a way of being to cultivate change. Well, Peter, I, I, um, we could go on. I feel like we, you and I could talk for days and I, when we should, I will come visit you, but I'm wondering, would you, like to do like a um, you know three minute meditation as a way of ending today, just kind of something, just sitting together. Yeah, we can just sit quietly for maybe. Why don't we just stop stop for a minute or two, and then if there's anything you you would like to say, just to as we end here today. Sure, absolutely. I was going to say I don't do spoken meditation. You know, I don't guide people, but I'm happy to sit always. Sit quietly for. Two minutes, two minutes as a way of uh, just taking all this in, taking it in and letting it go.
Peter, uh, anything, anything closing words? Yeah. So if we think that the Buddha died 2,500 years ago, we're following a dead man. If we model the life of the Buddha in our own, Buddha's alive. Thank you. And uh, what a joy to uh, get to hang out with you. I look forward, I look forward to uh, visiting you and, and look forward to reading uh, your, your, your books. Thank you. Beautiful. Uh, thank you so much. Listen in each week for interviews, teachings, and guided meditations. You'll receive supportive tools for creating more meaningful work and mindfulness practices to develop yourself, to influence your organization, and to help change the world. Thank you for listening.